It's from an actual conversation I overheard once at a restaurant. Hey, listen, I don't want to sound condescending. Do you know what condescending means, by the way? Welcome once again, everybody, to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all-new GMC AT4 lineup. As always, yours truly, Jeff Merrick, Elliot Friedman, and Amel Delich. And Elliot, as we record this on Sunday evening, the Vancouver Canucks have lost a hockey game. one nothing at the hands of the Chicago Blackhawks. What's the latest on Vancouver? It feels like we're going very much game by game with this thing. I'm just looking at my phone. We're, we're recording this just after the Canucks game finished. And I've got an angry text from a friend of mine in Vancouver because he said to me earlier today, what's your prediction on the Canucks tonight? You know, Chicago, 22-hour turnaround. You know, he says, I'm feeling good about this one. Yep. And I said, you outshoot them a thousand to six <laughs> and flurry makes a thousand saves yeah and he's cursing me right now there is a steady stream like there's words i've never even heard of i think it's swearing in other languages that's coming at me right now i like that they played well enough to win they lost flurry was unbelievable it's one of those games that you lose when the season is going the way it's going. But right now for Vancouver, there's no moral victories, Jeff. The moral victories are gone. And, you know, the tension is really high. And, you know, we talked a lot about them, you know, for Friday's podcast. And now here we are talking about them uh, for Monday's podcast. And, you know, the one thing I was talking about with someone there on the weekend is you can really feel it in the organization. You know, sometimes your organization is really tense because of everything you're going through. It's like that with the Canucks right now. Everybody's looking around, everybody else saying, okay, you know, we're waiting for something to happen. Is it going to be an executive? Is it going to be a coach? Is it going to be a player? You know, who's it going to be? And the other thing that happens is, is that, you know, factions develop. People are like, well, I think that person's safe, so I'm going to kind of align with them. Or mm. I think that person has the proper ear, so I'm going to align with them. And there's definitely a lot of that going on. You've got agents calling the team to figure out, you know, what's with the players, uh, you know, who's getting moved, who, who are they shopping, if anyone. You know, the one thing I did hear from a couple other teams is, I mean, Jeff, you know how it is when when you're going through this, the vultures are circling like the sharks smell blood in the water. Every other tortured metaphor I can pull out here. And, you know, a couple teams did say to me, you could tell Vancouver's trying to be careful. They really are aware that this is the time you make the deal that hurts you for a decade. So you don't want to do that. But you just can't help but feel that something is coming there over the next little while and everybody is kind of waiting to see what's that first move going to be. But the sense I really get around the organization is that does everybody jump into the rowboat together? Is everybody kind of together? Or there's are people sitting there and saying, oh boy, I, I got to protect myself. I've got to align with this person. It certainly feels like B. It, it, it certainly feels that people are looking around saying, What's my best route for surviving this? So this sounds like Game of Thrones. So that's always healthy. That's actually what I was thinking about. But I just think that's the way it is. Like everybody feels something there is coming. The ownership met last week. They're sitting here going, we didn't expect this. We didn't think we would have this as a problem. Yeah. But if it doesn't turn around, 
you know, what are we going to do? That's kind of the question they're asking. And look at it right now. They, they lost to Colorado. They beat Winnipeg. Now they've lost to Chicago. I get a general sense around the league right now that I don't know if people are necessarily in trouble, but I think there's more than one team out there that's starting to say, okay, what are we going to do here? What could we do here? What's one of the things that Mike Ford said to us on our podcast? Always have the next person in mind, even if you're not hiring the next person. Yes. Like my ego is not that large that I think that this might be happening because Mike Ford said it on our podcast. You know, I'm not that much in love with myself. I am. I'll take that. He said on our podcast. That's <laughs> Jeff I'll, I'll is really in love with himself. <laughs> I'm not that much in love with myself. But just one of the things that came out of that conversation we had was that someone was telling me there's a bit of that going on in the league right now. Like if we have to make a change, and I don't think Vancouver's the only team is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. If we have to make a change, what are we going to do? But, you know, they they played hard. They should have won. Fleury beat them. You know, the tough thing is there's just no moral victories right now. You know, it's always tough too when you're um, when you're scared to make a move because you don't want to lose the deal. That makes it really hard to do anything, doesn't it? I mean, you're really frozen. We've seen this before with general man. I actually think that's better than the alternative. No, I know. I know you don't want to rush in anything too, but then if you want to do something to try to fix it, but your only concern is, ah, I don't want to do this because I don't want to get roasted and I don't want to lose this. No, 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 no. I think there's a difference. I don't think that's the issue. First of all, you're already getting roasted there. It's not like it's going to change anything. I don't think it's the fear of making a deal or the fear of being roasted. I think it's more like making a deal you know that will be on your resume forever or you're going to regret forever. That's the sense that I get. We shall see what happens with uh, Vancouver. Um, Who knows when we may have to do an emergency podcast. We'll stand by. Minnesota Wild and Kevin Fiala. Um, Mike Russo tweeting about this. Mike Russo typing about this. What's happening with Fiala in Minnesota? I don't know if there's another person that has a better grasp of their team of anyone who covers a team than Russo does in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So when he says that this is a situation to watch, it's a situation to watch because he has a certain intuition into what's happening there. You know, the the one thing, and it was tough because they were playing tonight and he had a bad break. He took a penalty that really wasn't him. And also he did score a huge goal. So he needed that. Kulikov, right point. Fiala shoots and scores. That might have been tipped. Hard to tell. So a sixth attacker goal. Another one for the Wild. They make it 4-3. I think it was tipped, David. It looked to me like it changed directions. The thing that someone said to me about it was this. If you look at Bill Guerin and the way he does things, he doesn't do them quickly. He's not afraid to make a big decision, but he does it with a plan. So if you go back to Suter and Parise last year, he made sure they went through the full process of, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm doing what we're going to do. He had debated that internally for a long time before he did it. I don't think he's going to trade Fiala because Fiala is going through a slump. If he's trading him, 
He's going doing it because he thinks it makes them better. And Russo makes a good point about their cap situation, but that's not until next year. And if you think Fiala can help you this year, you deal with it this year, and then you can deal him either at the deadline or the offseason because he's still got one more year until he's a UFA, right? Mm-hmm. So him and Everson know each other from Milwaukee, and Everson's no shrinking violet. And Fiala, if you remember Everson playing, like he backs down from no one. And Fiala is a confident lad, as they say, Mr. Merrick. I don't know if that's the term that uh, <laughs> many of his ex-colleagues, perhaps in Nashville, would use when he was there. Um, I'm not sure extremely confident young man would uh, be how they would describe him. Quite do it justice. <laughs> I think you're giving him a very, very... Um, a very soft landing on that. Well, one. you know why? I, I like the thing Listen, is, we've, we, we talked about it before. The Nashville guys found him challenging when he first showed up as a rookie. He's very confident in himself. There's, yeah. there's no question in that, and it doesn't always. And sometimes it rubs <laughs> people the wrong way. But whatever. I, I'd rather someone believe in themselves than not. I'd rather have to harness someone than you know whip them to get going. So the point that someone made to me was, I could always be wrong. Garen could trade him tomorrow, but the the sense I really got is that. If Bill Guerin is going to move anyone, like look how long he held on to Dumba and then he kept him. Don't assume anything conventional with Bill Guerin was what someone told me. And a player there is going to have a lot of time to show that it's not just a short-term thing. They're going to have a lot of rope to, to do what they need to do. That's what someone said to me. Uh, okay, to pick up on a story we talked about last podcast, uh, the Omaha Lancers of the USHL. Now, over the weekend, um, USA Hockey and the USHL met with various players uh, on the Omaha Lancers. Um, we all know the story of the budget cuts and the dismissal of Chad Cassidy and President Dave DeLuca placed on administrative leave. Uh, the USHL Sunday evening did provide an update on the Lancers. Bill Robertson, who's the president and commissioner, uh, along with Josh Mervis, who's been appointed by the USHL to oversee operations of the team, met virtually with Lancers players, introduced Mervis and Omaha Lancers head coach Gary Graham to the squad. Uh, The commissioner will be traveling to Omaha Monday to meet with players and staff. They resume hockey operations on Monday, November the 22nd, uh, which will be when you hear this podcast. Uh, they will be playing next weekend, November 27th and 28th. What is the latest that you're hearing on the Omaha Lancers, Elliot? So, Jeff, there's been you know a lot of reporters who are much closer to this story. You know, Chris Peters, Brad Elliott Schlossman, Mike Patterson. He actually works in that area. I think Katie Strang's written a couple of things about it. You know, I'm not as tight into it as they are, but I made some calls on more of a macro level and just asked what was going on. And there was some pretty interesting stuff that some people told me. And, you know, the thing they pointed out is that there's a number of teams in the USHL and Omaha is one of them that's owned by a parent where a child had is playing or had played for the team. Uh, there's a few different situations there like that right now. And this is one of them. The DeCesar family owns the team, and one of their sons had played for them a few years ago. Uh, he left, uh, he was enrolled at Notre Dame, and now I think he's playing at, at Trinity College or something like that. But 
there's a worry there that this could happen in more than one place. That coming out of COVID, where some of these teams got crushed, now once your child leaves the team, you might just not want to pour the money into it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what someone said to me today and, and someone else backed that is they're just wondering if this is kind of the tip of the iceberg with that. Like once their children are gone, is this going to happen in more than one place? Like this has been a weekend of bad PR for the team in the league, unfortunately. There's advisors because I guess you can't call them agents at this point. Other side of the business card, agent on one side and family advisor on, on the, the other, other. On the other side of like the card, like they yeah. want their kids to leave there. There, I, I think there's some NCAA commits where the schools are saying, "Can we find you somewhere else to play?" What someone said to me with that they were really worried about with this is that, are we going to see? Is this where families okay say, "All right, you know what? We're coming out of COVID." Finances are tighter. My kid's gone or is leaving. I don't care as much anymore. And that's something they're going to have to protect themselves against if that's true. I want to open up with an email that winks back at our last podcast. Peter T. from Colorado submits this one for each. My expat wife and I are in our 60s and wear our Avs jerseys to the games. I'll wear my Habs jersey once a year when Montreal comes to town and she'll wear her Jets sweatshirt when Winnipeg comes in. For those that didn't hear the last podcast, by the way, there's a question about is there an age appropriateness for wearing jerseys, to which Elliot and I both said, no, wear whatever you want. Wear them as long as you see fits. Back to the email. We see a lot of jerseys for the visiting team, especially the original six. That's okay. But what I don't get are guys, it's always males, in brackets, who come to the game in a jersey from a third team. What are your thoughts about someone who comes to an Avs-Blackhawks game in a Sharks jersey? Yeah. Jersey uh, etiquette now? Is that where we're going? Yeah, (laughs) I'm not crazy about that, especially if it's a rival. I thought you were going to say Red Wings. That's where I Mm. thought you were going, but... You know, for example, like we both live in Toronto. If the Maple Leafs were playing the Penguins like they were last Saturday and you showed up in a Canadian's jersey, like I think that's licensed for food targeting, I think. Not that I condone food targeting, but it's licensed for. Licensed for snarks or perhaps not food targeting. Maybe just the odd comment while you're off to have a squirt in the the men's room, perhaps. You know what I kind of like in it, too? When you go to a concert and someone's wearing someone else's band t-shirt. That's also weird to me. It was. I remember when I first started going to concerts as a teenager, it always felt weird to me. But then I sort of got older and I said, okay, well, there's a Rolling Stones fan at a Who show. Who really cares? Like, it is possible, by the way, to be a Sharks fan and just enjoy hockey. So you go to see the Avs and the Blackhawks, but you just like to remind everybody where your first love is. And that's San Jose. I'm fine with it. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird. Well, you're petty that way, though, Elliot. We've uh, we've determined. Oh, that. I, I'm petty. There's there's no question about that. I still think it's weird. Uh, okay, to one of the big news stories uh, that broke late last week, and we talked about it yesterday. Well, you did specifically on Thirty Two Thoughts on Hockey Night. Uh, Fenway Sports uh, in the process of purchasing the Pittsburgh Penguins, but that's not the first door that they knocked on. They knocked on the Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment door before they got to Pittsburgh. For those that didn't. 
uh, see the hit on Saturday. What do you hear? What do you know? So Fenway Sports Group, as you mentioned, they own the Red Sox, they own Liverpool, and they're in the process of buying the Penguins. And the other thing I've heard is that they are not done. This is an aggressive organization. Mm -hmm. They want to go in the NBA. And, you know, the NFL is a little bit of a trickier animal because of its ownership rules. But they have interest pending, you know, kind of how things could potentially work somewhere down the road. But as you mentioned, before they went to the Penguins, someone on their behalf, I don't necessarily think it was someone particularly in the Fenway Sports Group hierarchy, but somebody with a connection to them reached out to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and said, look, would you be interested in a merger? Hmm. Now, the most challenging thing about that, for those of you who aren't familiar, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment owns Scotiabank Arena, the Maple Leafs, the Raptors, the Argos, and TFC, the MLS team. Rogers by itself owns the Blue Jays, and that would be a challenge. You know, Rogers has a share, a... 37.5% share of MLSE, and they own the Blue Jays. So how would you do that? Can't own the Red Sox and the Blue Jays. So, for example, that would be one of the questions they had to work out. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case is, at that point in time, MLSE said, it's not right for us at this time. We're not ready. And it didn't go very far. However, a couple people who work in the banking industry were telling me that they believe that What Fenway is doing is where sports are going. Mm -hmm. For example, the owners of the Devils, Harrods Blitzer, they own the Devils, they own the 76ers, they own Crystal Palace. The owners of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Glazer family, they own Manchester United. And it's going to go more and more what Fenway is doing. This is where we're headed. And, you know, what these, these bankers were telling me was that's not going to be the last time Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is going to be asked. Mm -hmm. They're going to be asked again. And someone's going to throw enough money at them at some point to think about it. In general, I think you're going to see more and more of this. But I also think we're headed into an interesting time with Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. Because, you know, as everybody knows, there's been changes at the top of Rogers. And I think people are wondering, what is that going to mean for its sports properties? What is the future of them? Mm -hmm. And I think people are kind of wondering, especially now that this is out there, that someone came to them once, what's everybody's intentions going to be and what's going to happen the next time? Because there is going to be a next time. So a couple of things here. Um, One is the end goal with all of this, whether you're Fenway Sports or another major company like this looking to gobble up teams in different sports, is the end goal the streaming service? I think in Fenway's case, that's definitely one thing that's huge is is a content platform. Yes, 100%. You know, the merger would be an interesting one if it had gone through for all the reasons that you indicate and then turning their attention to Pittsburgh. And the one thing that, that jumps out at me is I always wonder about a city's sports vibration. You know, what's it like? How do fans feel about their teams? How do citizens feel about their sports teams? And the interesting thing about Pittsburgh is right now, all the major league sports teams are family owned and that ends with this. I don't know if that changes the vibe profoundly or immediately, but it will change. I mean, 
Elliot, when we were growing up, whether it was Ballard or Stephen Stavros, like you had a face and a family you could point to and say they're responsible for this team. The thing that I wonder about through all of this, as you know, this is you know looking towards the future of what ownership is going to look like. Are we, in your estimation, not just hockey but other sports as well, seeing the end of the family-run sports organization? Jeff, I think we've been headed that way in a long time. I mean, there are some families that are incredibly wealthy that can do this, but there's no question when you take a look at the prices to buy teams or what these teams are valued at, it's going to be a very exclusive club. There's no question about it. I think the other thing too is, you know, some of these leagues have certain rules about how ownership groups have to work and who owns them and is it one specific person and can it be a company and things like that. You know, that's the other thing that, you know, people are telling me are are some of these leagues, including the NHL, going to have to rewrite who can actually own them. You know, some leagues don't like ownership that's purely corporate. They want a face to it. So, like when I said on Saturday night, I don't know exactly where we're going, but I know we're going somewhere. I think that's kind of where we are. Do you have any indication what the the price tag may have been on Pittsburgh? How much Fenway would have would have spent on this? I'm wondering if we find out the sale at the Board of Governors, which is scheduled for the second week of December. Right. Like th- there were some people who were saying to me they thought it was going to be done last week, and then on the weekend when I was researching it. I just heard it's not done yet, so I wonder if they'll just wait to the Board of Governors. But the number I heard they wanted to get to was $900 million. Hmm. Now, I've had some people say to me they think it's between eight fifty and nine, but again, I'm not reporting that as firm. But the number I heard Pittsburgh wanted to get to was 900 and the league wanted Pittsburgh to get to 900 Like right. I mentioned last week, the, the rumor that you know, they when they put the when the team was out there about seven years ago, you know, the league was saying nothing under seven fifty. And it didn't get there at the time, but I heard they wanted nine hundred here. I don't know if they got there, but I think it's somewhere gonna be between eight fifty and nine. Speaking of ownership, speaking of franchises, uh Quebec Premier Francois Legault raising eyebrows on RDS on last Thursday talking publicly about bringing the Nordiques back to Quebec, Elliot, uh, indicating that the government will meet with Gary Bettman um, to discuss this in the upcoming months. I spoke to a couple of people, and, and one in specific, about what this all means. This is someone who's very close to that scene. I actually thought that the thing that you reported that was most interesting was that there was a call between the league. And who was it last week? Like, who did they talk to? Uh, Bill Daly said there was a phone call, Mm -hmm. but that no meeting had been arranged. Now, I'm not sure whether that was with Francois Legault himself or someone from his office, Mm -hmm. but Bill Daly um, did indicate that there was a phone call. Said, look, no meetings have been arranged. We're willing to talk and meet, but um, the quote he gave me is, you know, we are obviously pleased with what we have. Mm -hmm. You know, people have mentioned to me, one person really close to it said, look, we're a year away from a provincial election campaigning has begun yes that's always happens hockey yes. in canada you know and bring a team back and you know the mayor of quebec city um has stepped down now and he's been the main driver of the bring the nordiques back and so there's a, a vacuum there and i guess you know uh the premier is, is trying to fill it right now but i thought the the interesting thing that he brought up as well is 
you know, the last time that we saw Quebec try to get a team, it was all about Quebec Corps, right? It was, you know, the one, the one company trying to bring a, bring a team to Quebec City. Mm-hmm. What he talked about was the idea that although Quebec Corps will be given, you know, first approval on, on joining consortium, that's the desired way to go about acquiring a club. And also, and you can see where this is a political hot potato as well, that the provincial government may consider an investment, investing capital in the project. So that is a new one. Here's why I don't always like that story. I agree with you. I think it's a political stunt in a lot of ways. I don't like political stunts. I don't have a lot of time for politicians. I think, you know, you tug with at people's heartstrings. I don't like that. I was in the room when Quebec or saw... Vegas get the team and they didn't. And I just remember watching them sitting there watching that and the staff who worked on their bid and and wanted to be a part of it and like it sucked for them, right? And they were so good about it. They said all the right things. They gritted their teeth. They watched the celebration. I just don't like people being jerked around like this. You know, I I really don't. So I don't like that whole thing. Look, what do you think the damage is to the Montreal Canadiens if the Nordiques come back? You think there'll be damage? You don't think there would be a significant financial impact on them? All I think about is the rivalry. Well, of course. I mean, like, I would love to see the Nordics come back. Like, I would love to see the Nordics come back. Mm -hmm. It would be awesome to see the Nordics and the Canadians go head to head again. But the question I have is, do you think both those teams, the Montreal Canadiens and the Quebec Nordiques, can both be successful financially? I don't think the Nordiques can. I still think the Montreal Canadiens can. I've always been skeptical about Quebec. I don't know how this one works. And I'm with you. I hate seeing fans get jerked around. And I hate the idea that the Videotron Center could be this generation's Cops Coliseum. Mm -hmm. But I can't see it. I do believe, it's my opinion, that if the Nordics were to come back, they would take a significant bite out of the Canadians. See, I don't know. I I don't want to, you know, just blather something out, you know, and, and, you know, do talk radio 101. I really don't know Mm -hmm. how much of a dent it would put in the Montreal Canadiens. I don't. Anyway, I just don't think that this is like, I just think that people get jerked around when this story comes up until like the one thing about Winnipeg was there was a point where if you were following the league closely enough, you knew that Winnipeg was very much on the radar because they had a big problem in Arizona and then they had a big problem in Atlanta. So here's the difference. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Because the one thing that we know the NHL does not like around new franchises is noise. Or trying to attract a franchise is noise. This is not the way, look at the way Winnipeg did it. It was quiet. There were no rallies. There were no big speeches. There was no going on television. You know, it was um, very much the opposite of how the Winnipeg Jets ownership group went about getting the Atlanta Thrashers into Manitoba. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Elliot, that Nordiques fans were loading up buses and going to Long Island, right? Remember them in the, in the stands at, uh, at Nassau Coliseum, you know, chanting, bring back the Nordiques? That doesn't go over well with the NHL. They don't like that kind of noise around either expansion or relocation. That's just not the way they do things. That's why when I first saw this story, I thought, well, A, NHL 
is not going to do this. And B, they really don't like this type of noise around it. They don't like that loud at all. So to me, right off the hop, there were two strikes on this one. And the fact that it's a politician, you look at it and say, okay, October 22nd, I think it is next year, Quebecers go to the polls. This is the obvious one. Yeah. But I am with you. Man, I love that rivalry. That to me was the nastiest rivalry of all of them. One of the reasons I hate my parents, I was born too late to cover Nordiques and Canadians and Oilers versus Flames in their primes. Another reason to hate your parents. Games that took four hours long to play. Also this weekend, Elliot, we saw the opening of the WBS Arena. Live from UBS Arena in Elmont, New York, Calgary Flames hockey is on the air. Tonight, in the first ever National Hockey League game played at the brand new UBS Arena, Jacob Markstrom and the 9-3-5 Calgary Flames will face Matt Barzell and the 5-6-2 New York Islanders. This was overshadowed by a couple of things. Uh, Players on COVID protocol and the Calgary Flames uh, winning 5-2. Andrew Mangiapane scoring goals number 13 and 14. Do you have a thought on what we saw on Saturday? First of all, the new rink in town, the new rink in the league. And second of all, another team going through it. You know, we just went through this with the Ottawa Senators. Previous to that, the San Jose Sharks. Now the Islanders with Pellick, Green, Bavillier, Lee, Johnson, and Bailey. Now, Bavillier, as we know now, was a false positive, but Kiefer Bellows is in COVID protocol as we speak, Elliot. First of all, the whole COVID situation, you know, the reason that Ottawa was shut down was they couldn't stop the spread of it. Basically, what happened is we know there's one unvaccinated player, right? And the staff are pretty much all vaccinated as far as we know. So when you're vaccinated, you only get tested every three days. So the moment you have some positive tests, you start getting tested every day. There's called enhanced protocols. And what happened in Ottawa was they were testing everybody every day and they had the enhanced protocols and they couldn't stop it. And finally, they just shut it down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you look at the Islanders situation, you're wondering, okay, how close are we getting to here? You know, the other thing, though, we talked about it briefly on Saturday night I got a call on Sunday from someone expressing a lot of frustration with the testing. And they said that if you look at Ottawa, there were rumors of people being, and I heard them, like I was getting notes almost every day saying this person will be added to the protocol. And I waited because someone warned me that there were there was a mix of true positives and false positives. And there were times they couldn't figure out you know, what was happening. Look at what happened with Dylan Larkin. He got pulled out of a game. And then the next day they found it was a false positive. Like, And they just changed some of the protocols and the testing because of some of these concerns. So I think there's a real problem right now, Jeff. It's a bit of a mess because the doctors are saying, look, if you want to avoid canceling games or postponing games and you want to go to the Olympics, you have to test. And some of the teams and the league, and I think even some of the players are bitching about the test because they're saying that there's too many false positives. So I think there's a lot of frustration right now. And I admit, I don't have the answers. When I asked last week, you know, what was the difference with Ottawa? They finally got it shut down. I was told they couldn't stop the spread of cases, even with enhanced protocols. 
So that's what I watch for here is when do we get to a point where the doctors say, and I do think it is the doctors making the calls where they just say, okay, enough's enough. This is over with. Um, the arena looks beautiful. You know, Michael Leboff, who's a big Islander fan who all works for the action network. He was so excited to go yesterday. You could see how excited the Islanders fans were. And I loved that they gave Clutterbuck, Martin, and Sezikis the first shift. I, I thought that was great. I, I'm really happy for the Islanders and their fans. Yeah. That's a good, true, hardcore NHL flagship base. And they deserve it. And I believe it was Oliver Wallstrom who got to step on the ice at practice the first. I wonder if they all like ran out and tackled each other in the hallway. They had a competition for it. I wonder if it was rock, paper, scissors, something. I think it was something like that. And Wallstrom won. So he got to be the first to touch You know what? The, the, the other guys are all probably beating up each other and, all, and Wallstrom <laughs> just, just snuck out around them. Hey, here's a question for you, Elliot. Yeah. Can a single goal get you a call up to the NHL? If so, tick, tick, Josh Hosang. No, I, I don't think so. It's funny. It's funny you said that because I, I didn't realize he has eight goals already, right? 12 points in 12 games. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be that simple. Look, he's trending in the right direction. But you know, I don't think I was expecting a call up after the the beautiful winner on Saturday, just a couple hours before they played uh, Pittsburgh. Carries it across the line. One, two, scores! It stings for Hosang. Sensational win for the Marlies. Three-two with 40 seconds left to go in overtime. What a move by Josh Hosang. Look, for example, like I don't think he's going out in the West Coast with them or anything like that. Right. Because they're, they're playing the Islanders on Sunday and then they go out West. But he's going to get his chance eventually if he keeps playing like that. That was a gorgeous goal. Well, sure we've seen was. some we've seen some beauties this year. The Carter Verhage we make a lot about the Connor McDavid goals. The Carter Verhage goal the other night coming down the uh, the side, coming down the boards was gorgeous. The Hosang goal that you mentioned at, for the Marlies was gorgeous. We've seen some beauties uh, so far this season. Um, do you have a thought on on Mason McTavish, third overall draft pick, sent back to to Peterborough of the OHL, where you know it's pretty much a foregone conclusion he'll be traded. Um, I was told, look for London, look for Sault Ste. Marie, uh, look for Barry, and look for Oshawa even, uh, as it sounds like Oshawa is going to try to go for it uh, this year. You ever thought on Mason McTavish, third overall, getting sent back? Well, what, there's two left, right? Uh, one, Cole Sillinger, that's it. What about Seth Jarvis? He wasn't last year's, he wasn't 2021 draft. Uh, you got me on that one. He was, you know, you know what, you know why he's important? That was the pick that Carolina got from the Leafs for Patrick Marlowe. Yes. From the Portland Winterhawks. Yeah, no, Cole Sillinger, if he was going to get sent back, would go to the Medicine Hat Tigers. So now there is only one, Cole Sillinger of the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. Mason McTavish is a center, right? And they got to put him on the wing because all of a sudden down the middle, you got a rejuvenated Ryan Getzlaff. You got Trevor Zegras. And you got very quietly Isaac Lundestrom putting together a really nice season for the Anaheim Ducks. Good luck getting into the middle with those three guys there. But it's going to be like an embarrassment of riches down the middle for Anaheim for quite some time. I got to tell you, I think there's a lot of interest in that job. You do, eh? I don't know what they're going to do there, but I've heard there's a lot of interest in that job. Well, when you look at all the young players they have, and it's all starting to actualize now, 
And there's decisions on Lindholm and Manson that we all know have to be made. Like, it's pretty attractive. Like, I think we looked at it. I don't know about you, Elliot. But I looked at it and I said, they're going to be good eventually. I just don't know when eventually is. You always look at, you know, development, progress, all of it. It's not always linear. You know, ask Vancouver Canucks fans what that feels like. Just playing out of their minds in the bubble and then it's been steps back. But we knew they'd be good one day. I don't know that we thought they would be this good this fast, though. But I can see why there'd be a lot of interest in that GM job. This is a good team. And you can see that it's going to be a good team for a while as well. Before we get back to our regular programming, we need to talk about our partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. Taco about Really? That's right. With $5 tacos available every Tuesday, satisfy any taco craving when you try their seasoned grilled chicken, Mexi spiced beef, Kapow shrimp, or mixed veggie options. Mix and match to try them all or add one to the side of your favorite Montana's item. $5 tacos at Montana's Barbecue and Bar every Tuesday. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Okay, a couple of different ways to get in touch with us and have your voice heard here on the podcast. One, you can email us at 32thoughts at sportsnet.ca or call the thought line 1-833-311-3232. That's snappy. 1-833-311-3232. It is the thought line. First email from Gene Elliott. You should give an update on the snake draft at the beginning of each episode. Elliot started it and created interest. So do the updates. Uh, who's winning this oh, thing? That is right so now? lame. Like that is so lame. Uh, Were you saving this email for when you had it? Where's the crown? No, I listen. I just go with what oh, with yeah. what Amel submits to me. And I just pass it along. This, oh, well, you're lame too. This good listener was um, kind enough, Gene, to take some time out of his day to send this to us. It has legitimate curiosity about the in-season Stanley Cup. And uh, just having a quick peek at who's wearing the crown. Total days champion, eight. You guys are both. I liked you better when you were at zero. You know what? When I was at zero and Dave was like at 18, he's still at 18, but he's he's paused a little bit and you started to rack up the numbers. He only has two teams in the Western Conference. I know, right? So he's stuck right now. He's- I was hoping that I would run the table and not have one day as champion. And I think I texted you asking if I could get a prize for that. And you shot me down fast. You don't deserve any prizes. So basically what you should do is if you're interested, you should follow at In Season Cup on Twitter. Yes. It's a grade four or five math class that is tracking our standings. They've put together a great graphic of a school in Oakville, Ontario. And right now, Jeff is, has the cop with the Edmonton Oilers, who will next uh, defend it on Tuesday night in Dallas, who I have. So they've created a great graphic that shows who has the cup and how many days they've had for the year and the schedule. And right now, Dave Amber has 18. Oh, he had a great run. He had a great run early, but, you know, as we said, he's only got Colorado and Vancouver in the West. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what that does. But Dave's at 18. I'm at 12. Jeff's at eight with the current championship. And poor Carolyn 
never got out of the parking lot, I guess. She's got two. I've got Edmonton facing off against your Dallas Stars on Tuesday. Then I've got Edmonton, so we're going to beat the Dallas Stars. Okay. Then uh, then I've got my Edmonton Oilers facing off against my Arizona Coyotes on Wednesday. Uh. So normally a back-to-back is like, uh-oh, that spells trouble? Yeah, not so fast. Unless Arizona wins, then I'll probably surrender this thing quick. <laughs> At in-season cup is where you should look. It's really good, and we uh, we thank those kind people, those great four and five students, uh, for putting this one together. Okay, this harkens back to a previous conversation. This from Nicholas. Uh, With the recent news of the Pittsburgh Penguins possibly being bought by the Fenway Sports Group, my question was, how does the sale of teams like this start? Do the owners reach out to others, or is there like an eBay site just for billionaires? Oh, that's funny. How do these types of sales come about in the sports world? There's a lot of different ways. Like so, earlier in the podcast, we talked about how Fenway Sports Group sent someone. I don't know if "sent someone" is the right way, but someone reached out on their behalf to MLSE. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that happens. You know, Batman. I don't know if he still does it, but he used to be a pretty big cold caller. You know, he would call people kind of out of nowhere and just say, "Look, you know, we've got teams available. People he wanted in his league." Mm-hmm. We've got teams available in the NHL. You know, would you be interested? I think now there's a lot of research done and there's a lot of companies put together with the express purpose to buy things. And I think it happens a lot of the way that Fenway approached MLSE. They say, go reach out to them. And it kind of goes from there. Or, you know, with Winnipeg, they told the league, if you ever want need to bring a team back here, we're here and we've got this ready. So I don't think there's one hard and fast rule. I think you, sometimes you let a league you know you're interested. I think sometimes the league comes for you. And I think sometimes an interested party will go to you and say, what are you thinking? Sometimes situations come up, like with Vegas, I don't think the league was really convinced on Vegas at the beginning. But they set a price, five hundred, and Bill Foley met it. Hang on, hang on. Isn't isn't one of the caveats always? Do you have a rink? I thought that kind of goes without saying. You know, you're not getting a team if you, if you're going to play in the Merrick backyard. You you either you either have a rink. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was always a, the, the, the. Well, that was the difference between Seattle before and Seattle now. You had a rink. The, that was one of the things that Hamilton always hung their hat on. Hey, we have a rink waiting here. And that's what Quebec is as well with the Videotron Center. Well, with Vegas, Vegas came to the league, and I think the league took a lot of convincing to go to Vegas. I still believe this to this day. They initially did not want to do it. Mm-hmm. But then they said, okay, $500 million, and they got told, okay, you'll get your $500 million. And then all of a sudden, they have a rink. And, you know, Vegas has turned out to be a huge success for the NHL, like much, much better than I think anyone ever envisioned. And that's a credit to the Golden Knights. And players want to play there. It's a destination to go. Yeah. So I think what they did with Vegas was they said, okay, now Seattle. And what they said was, we're setting the price, 650 and you have to get your arena situation sorted out. And they hit the price, and they got their situation sorted out. So sometimes I think the league says, you have to convince the league, and the league sets terms, And now can you meet them? And I think in these particular cases, that's what happened. 
the league said, okay, if you're serious about this, you have to have this and this, and you got to hit this number. And both those situations did that. Barry from British Columbia sends in this one, Elliot. Why do the linesmen insist on getting in the middle of every shoving match these days? Actually, Barry, it's happened long, long before these days. Mm-hmm. Um, he continues. It just encourages these so-called tough guys to continue their nonsense. Amen. Stay out of it and let the mouthpieces get laid out a few times and the pace of the game will improve greatly. Plus, it will prevent a linesman from being seriously injured, which is going to happen eventually. Thoughts on this one. One of my favorite referees ever was Paul Stewart. He's a former tough guy, minor league, NHL as well who ended up being an an NHL referee and like me, and I think like a lot of us and like obviously Barry from BC, he hated scrums because the guys that do it are just waiting for the linesman to come in and and peel the guys apart. Why I ought to, well, wait till this guy gets, well, get this guy off of me. Well, if this linesman would get out of the way, it's the fake tough guy nonsense. Paul Stewart would call his linesman out of scrums. He'd say, guys, get out. You guys are going to settle this. Are you going to fight or are you just going to stop? But my guys aren't coming. And he, he, I mean, he would stand there outside of scrum and he'd yell like my guys aren't coming in because how many times have you seen like Elliot players looking around for the linesman to come in when they want to continue with the act that they really don't want to do. You have a thought on that one? I just wonder if the whole concussion scenario plays into it. In what sense? They're more inclined to stop it than they used to be. I think for fights, when they when they were instructed, the minute you have a chance to safely stop a fight, do it, even before it actually takes place. Now, it seems as if they've laxed on that. Like when guys will fade back to center ice to do the spotlight fight, mm-hmm. two linesmen can jump in there. Okay, last podcast, we talked about Reeves and Pizzetta. You don't think there was enough time for two linesmen to jump in there and get in between? Look how long it took them to engage. Linesmen were anywhere near them. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing that two linesmen couldn't have grabbed each individual by the time they finally engaged. Because Pazetta approached, they dropped their gloves, and Pazetta almost like he had to talk himself into actually doing it. <laughs> his gloves were I on just think ice. generally, though, like yeah. most people say to me that it's a good point. I, I, I can see on that one. But most people say to me that linesmen are much faster to get in now than they used to be. That one would definitely be an exception. Anybody from the Kevin Collins era says, I don't think so, because that guy jumped in fast. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the thought line. Who do we have, Amal? Hey, Jeff. This is uh, Gislaine in Halifax. I have a question for you about Dan Carlin. What is your favorite podcast by Dan Carlin, and why is it The Monster Rebellion? Thanks. Bye. The Monster. that That one is called Prophets of Doom. Elliot, you know this. I'm a huge Carlin fan. Yeah, you've appeared with him. That was podcast fantasy camp for me, um, going on his uh, his podcast, Hardcore History Addendum. That was a real treat. Prophets of Doom is really good. Um, the Munster Rebellion is fascinating, and seeing those cages still hanging outside that church is a little creepy and haunting. I always go back to Blueprint for Armageddon. That is the, uh, the multi-part series on World War I. I've recently re-listened to Supernova in the East, which is all about um, the war in the Pacific towards the end of World War II. Destroyer of Worlds uh, is outstanding. Ghosts of the Ostfront uh, is great. His conversations um, with Ian W. Toll most recently, Fred Kaplan, uh, author of The Bomb and, and Wizards of Armageddon, uh, is outstanding. There's a lot, but I'll, I'll always 
go back to Blueprint for Armageddon. Like I always tell people, like if you're gonna listen to one series of podcasts from Carlin, Blueprint for Armageddon, because this guy has the most unique ability to make you feel like you're there and put you in those positions. And for Carlin, he always talks about context is king, context is king. He takes one event and describes it a number of different ways from a number of different perspectives. And so you feel like you are there, but in a number of different lives. To me, he's the most fascinating podcaster going. Blueprint for Armageddon, that's the one. Although on second listening, Supernova in the East is outstanding. Like the older he gets, the better he gets at doing this. And he's been doing this for a long time. Um, Supernova in the East may end up being his his best work, but I'll always go back to Blueprint for Armageddon. Thank you, Gislen from Halifax. You like Carlin too, don't you, Fridge? I do. I don't know half of what you just talked about, but I do like <laughs> What a great way to finish the podcast with me talking and not Elliot. Um, taking us out, an artist whose performance style is a mix of live instrumentation and looping. Michael Hamilton, stage name M.H. Vernon, has been making music for over a decade and started performing live during his time in Seoul, South Korea. From his 2020 Feel the Urgency EP, here's M.H. Vernon with Whatcha on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. What you gonna do? Where you gonna go? Who you gonna see? Who you gonna meet? What you gonna do with your Where you gonna go, who you gonna see, who you gonna meet, what you gonna do? 